You're listening to a podcast created by the Jack's Way Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. All right, so we're back with another episode here. And today we're reading a story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omilas by Ursula Le Guin. Is that how you pronounce her last name? I think so. Let's go with that. We're notorious for uh, mispronouncing names. (laughs) It's hard when you only read it in like words and you never actually hear it. As far as we're concerned, we're doing it completely right. And then somebody's going to comment and be like, no, you guys are all wrong. Damn it. This is how we generate controversy in our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So it's on me to talk about the story. This is actually my suggestion. So since it's uh, Thanksgiving weekend, I thought it was a good idea for us to hop into a very short story seeing as we were all probably pretty strapped for time this weekend. So I actually came across this story. I've never read anything by Ursula Le Guin. All that I know is that she's an American novelist, I think born in the 1920s, and uh, died very recently, actually. Died this year. And so basically what happens in the story, it's only four pages, so it's very, very short. Basically it starts off with the description of a society where everything is in place, everything fits together quite nicely. The people are genuinely happy in the society. And it just the first half of the story is basically dedicated to a description of uh, the society and how well it functions and how genuinely happy the people are within it. It's the society itself is very much well-functioning and is quite different from our modern industrial society. As you continue on in the story, you then realize that um, in order to maintain the society, There's actually a basement where there's an extremely small child of about six years old who is just constantly, brutally suffering every second of the day. And in order for the society to maintain itself, this child has to suffer. And there's a kind of rite of passage where everyone in society is actually exposed to um, this suffering child. And once they're exposed to it, uh, they're never to speak of it again return to society, and continue on. That's pretty much it in terms of plot, but lots to uh, lots to dive into here. Any uh, beginning thoughts from you guys? What did you think of it as just a story? As a story, it's not extremely substantial. Like it, it's, it's pretty brief, but in its short period of time, I like the fact that it's predicated a lot on reader imagination and uh, the reader essentially taking the reins of the story. It prompts multiple times in its introduction of the city and description of the city to think of like all these beautiful, great wonders and how the city has everything. So brevity really is the soul of wit. And in this case, she uses brevity extremely well by allowing the reader to expand and take it where they want. And as a story that's very predicated on imagination, it makes that twist extremely substantial because it's not just uh, trying to rationalize something that she imagined. It's creating like a rationality for what kind of evil can manifest all of this good. And it's it's subjective good because everybody is uh, choosing their own goods to go off of. Yeah, I thought it was... um... It was like a thought experiment that the narrator was kind of trying to pull out from the reader. Yeah, I very much got that thought experiment vibe as well for a couple of reasons. One, there's no real individual characters in the story. 
aside from maybe the suffering child. No one is really named in here. One thing that's just like a staple of thought experiments in general is the way that you have to kind of suspend your disbelief and kind of accept an extremely absurd situation in order to really understand the thought experiment. And so like classic example is the trolley problem, like pushing a fat man off of a bridge to to save a bunch, to save five people, right? You have to kind of um, accept the fact that you're going to be using an absurd example, and that's almost a staple of a thought experiment. And um, this story is is no different given the fact that you have a utopian society that is built upon the fact that one small child has to just suffer miserably for all time in order for that to happen. It's interesting that you bring up the trolley problem because that was like the very first instinct I had. And it was the very first analogous subject matter I could really um, compare this to because it really does take that thought experiment to the extreme of would you endure one person's suffering in order to create uh, good for the overall population. And obviously it's taken to a very, very dire extreme, but um, I think the uh, the comparison is very apt and it's it's very similar discussion that takes place. Yeah, although the story makes it very clear it's very different from our society. I really got the sense of we are engaging in the same form of consequentialism ourselves to maybe a lesser extent. Kind of goes back to what we've talked about before of using an extreme and absurd example to highlight um, a certain reality. And, you know, to a certain extent, most modern societies are built upon the suffering and subjugation of, of others. And that's basically baked into our societal well-being is the fact that there are, there are people who are losers. And so we just have to, you know, live with that right now. And I think that this is just that taken to a much more extreme where the amount of people who are winners is expanded tenfold and the amount of people who are suffering is reduced to one person. The same sorts of calculation has to take place. To expand on that point just a, a little bit, uh, the story is almost ironic because there's one section where she's, you know, she's discussing with the reader uh, what this kind of city would be like. And at one point it mentions how it would only be like the right kind of joy. Uh, the direct quote is the joy built upon successful slaughter is not the right kind of joy. So there's this implication that there is a right kind of joy, like a morally just kind of joy, something that doesn't impede on others or invokes the sense of violence. And yet, all of the joy in this city is derived not from successful slaughter, but from the subjugation of an innocent child and the suffering of an innocent child. Definitely a kind of contradiction there, um, without a doubt, because if you were just concerned with joy in a kind of more consequentialist sense, it wouldn't matter how you had people in society feel that joy um, as long as they were feeling it. Whereas uh, the story makes, per that quote you just said, the way that you achieve that joy is actually extremely important too. And so although they claim that it's extremely important, they're still taking this kind of consequentialist approach because the joy is baked upon or is based upon uh, suffering at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. How do we feel about the, um, like one of the most interesting things that I got from first read through was um, the way that the society is structured. It really does go out of its way to talk about all of the ways that it is not our society They don't need the industrial systems. They don't need like large-scale transit systems. They don't need um, luxury items. 
yet they are still achieving the same kind of extremely good emotional well-being. And so where does that come from, if not from these luxury items that we have here? Is this trying to tell us something about our own society? Yeah, I, w- I would agree that it's probably illuminating points of our society that the author is uh, taking issue with. One of the points that I picked out was the fact that it mentioned how there's no cards. And um, that was something I found extremely interesting because I feel like vehicles uh, from a very benign perspective are uh, like a piece of equipment of efficiency, but it's what that efficiency achieves because I feel like vehicles have become uh, as much like a product of labor as well as a product to continue labor, something that um, enables a more like pragmatic practice of um, like a more pragmatic, more pragmatic practice of contributing to the overall turning wheel of society. And I feel like she does so much to remove ourselves from those devices that could pertain to labor and just focus on almost like hedonistic enjoyment. With the Drews? Yeah. It seems like, uh, it seems like as a piece of literature, it's, you know, there's the allegorical, uh, discussion of society and like preying off of individuals, but there's also, uh, points that kind of, um, seem to deride the capitalist system and derive the labor, um, labor intensive system that we live in. So what was the thing you said called Oliver? It's like this drug called Drew's. What page is this on? Page two. Page two. Oh, the faint, insistent sweetness of Drew's may perfume the ways of the city. Drew's, which first brings a great lightness and brilliance to the mind and limbs, and then after some hours, a dreamy languor, a wonderful and wonderful visions at last of the very arcana and inmost secrets of the universe, as well as exciting the pleasure of sex beyond all belief. And it is not habit forming. For more modest tastes, I think there ought to be beer. <laughs> yeah then then she goes on to say in the last paragraph that she doesn't think that any of them need to take Drews because they're already happy yeah and so does it give any indication about like the types of people who are taking Drews in this society or no i think it's almost everybody the implication is but is this like is this whole paragraph just she's just kind of like making this up she's like kind of asking the reader to imagine this there and it's it may not even actually be there um i think that how you imagine amalas is very much um, a process of the reader's imagination as much as ursula's as well i think she's really just trying to have the reader picture a society where you can just have people genuinely happy and content with their lives without experiencing any sort of lack and however you want to imagine it let's just use that as a starting point and then once you have that starting point then it asks the philosophical question to you can you have this society and can the society live on once you find out that it is built upon the extreme suffering of someone else? There is this great quote on the first page that I think it'd be interesting to talk about. It's the quote, only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, a refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. How did you guys interpret yeah. that? Well, one of the things that I actually really liked about your notes was Le Guin's kind of subtle chirp to Dostoevsky. Um, you wrote down, 
a question to Ursula, where do you get your ideas from, Miss Le Guin? And then she says, from forgetting Dostoevsky and reading Road Signs backwards, naturally, where else? And so I thought that this was really funny because this kind of specific sentence might be speaking directly to Dostoevsky because he is the one who, I mean, Notes from the Underground is basically dedicated to the fact that people don't want happiness. People don't want hedonism. People don't want things to be in perfect order and they don't want stability. They want instead suffering and struggle and something to overcome and they want to experience some sort of pain or misery that they can then work through or or yeah overcome and i think that this passage that you read oliver really is just kind of shooting that down and being like no no, no this is the product of the starving artist who loves suffering and who, yeah. who fetishizes it to a certain extent i'm certainly guilty of that as well i felt like it was speaking to me, every fucking story, I want more suffering, right? She's basically calling out like, no, 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 you're like, you are truly fetishizing this concept. You can have happiness in itself and there's nothing wrong with that. I felt like the story itself was that whole thought. She's like, like what you're saying, you fetishize pain and stuff. And then at the end of the story, we get what we want. The child in the basement, we get that suffering. Yeah. How do you feel about like, where do you stand on uh, this issue? On like the whole art is suffering kind of thing. Yeah, or like even more broadly, is it a good thing to have a society where there is no suffering? Um, or do you think that this is actually something essential to our well-being? Is it possible to have... A, I don't think it's possible to have a society without suffering. I think suffering is a relative term, and we can derive suffering from almost anything. Like, I feel in this society, um, if you honestly are surrounded with such pleasures and such happiness, then something like stubbing your toe would be suffering. And people would be like, oh, stub my toe, worst thing to ever happen. Because it's all relative. Anything that goes beyond the baseline uh, would be considered suffering and pain. So I don't think it's possible to have a society without suffering. I think it's just, it would be possible to have a society where the definition of suffering would be absurd predicated on our definition of suffering derived from our experiences and expectations. Right. So we would just have totally different conceptions um, in our society versus the people in, uh, in somewhere like Amalas. Exactly. Like, think of the suffering, and I should throw suffering in quotation marks, but think of the suffering that we endure as a Western society relative to what other nations are currently going through, what they're suffering. Like, it's it's hard for us to it's hard for us to classify what we go through as suffering through another person's scope, and I think that applies to all pieces of fiction as well. I think I would agree with that. Plus, I mean, I don't know if this is going to go down the wrong rabbit hole here, but uh, do you guys feel like existential angst is a suffering that is escapable through hedonism and pleasures? Would there not still be that ponderance of what is our purpose? Yeah, it reminds me of our very first episode of the podcast on the myth the of Sisyphus and the absurd at the end of the day. Like, throw, slap whatever hedonism or accomplishment or overcoming struggle or whatever it is that you want. And still at the core, you have the fact that you exist and you have nothing to reconcile that with no matter what you do with your life, that is always going to be at the core. So yeah, I, I, I totally don't think that hedonism or Druze or 
whatever the fuck you want to engage in in this gives you any sort of escape from the existential problem at the core of it. I feel like the fact that there are people that empathize with the child is of some indication that there is suffering within the society because if people were detached from negative feelings completely, they would not be able to relate or understand this child and what they're currently enduring. Uh, I feel like the fact that people are leaving the city and that people are aware and that there is um, a desired ignorance towards the suffering of the child shows that like they are not without suffering of some kind. They must have endured something at, at some point. You're totally right. I'm just trying to think of the ways in which, because I want to I kind of get your guys' opinion on whether or not you could live in this society. Because although we draw parallels to the trolley problem, there are some very different things uh, between this and the trolley problem. The fat man on the bridge, you are actually actively doing something to harm someone in order to achieve the positive consequence of saving, say, five people. Um, but you are actively killing someone. Whereas the people who are birthed in this society are taking no active actions to bring about the suffering of this individual. And so are they any less complicit than the person who is pulling that lever or pushing that man off the bridge? And does that make them less morally culpable for continuing to live in this society after they find out what it's built upon? I, I want to direct that question first to Oliver because he brought up a point about third world countries and whether this could be allegorical, allegorical to that. And I feel like whatever we answer to this question has serious implications on whether we are good modern citizens based off of his <laughs> point on third world countries. Cause isn't, um, I haven't read much Peter Singer, but isn't that his whole, like the most good you can do argument? Yeah, I think so. I guess the, the what hits home for me is the shallow pond experiment, right? Where the only difference between the shallow pond baby and the baby in Africa who needs a malaria bug net or the Syrian refugee who needs somewhere to sleep is distance and geography. And so we use that distance as a way to kind of wipe our hands clean, but ought we do so? And I think he's saying we should not. And is living in this society described in Amalas the same as living in the West? I think so. I think that's what it was. That's what, that's what my interpretation of it was. It's just like, this is a, an allegory for the West. Um, I think you're on the right page there. Like, even though it really reduces the um, the situation of the modern day into an extremely simplified example, like I, I think it's still touching on the same issue, which is the West is a society that's benefiting um, from the the suffering and the the lack of rights that occur overseas and abroad. And how do we live with this? How do you go about your everyday life? One of the things I wrote in my notes. That is just another key difference between Amalas and uh, our society or Western society is the fact that every member of Amalas actually has to go ahead and stare that suffering baby in the face. Every single child goes through this. They go into that basement. They look at the baby and they are staring in the face everything that their society is built upon. And us in the West... We don't have to do that. We don't have that rite of passage. The majority of us can go through and be completely ignorant of the suffering on a much larger scale 
without ever truly having to look it in the face. And even those of us who go out of our way to try to empathize with the suffering, we are still getting a more abstract version of that, whether that's through a book about the conditions of Africa or exploitation or a documentary or a academic speaker or even a guest speaker of someone who has experienced that exploitation. All of these are abstractions and not what the people of Amalas have to do, and that is stare it in the face. We don't have to do that. And I think that that makes our guilt and the burden we have to bear much, much lighter. And so I think that is how we continue on. To kind of continue it? I just don't think that we are truly confronted with this, the actual weight of what we are ignoring because we are never truly confronted with that level of suffering. Instead, it was so mediated through a book or through but a guest speaker. About, or through an, what about with things like mass immigration or through Europe and stuff like that? Well, uh, I guess I, I would apply the same principle. People who are living in Europe might be so opposed to that because they have not been staring in the face the conditions which those people are fleeing in the first place, right? That is why they have such hesitance. Whereas if they were on the ground in Syria and had to see what those people um, were fleeing saw, maybe they would have more sympathy? I'm unsure. I know that I've kind of uh, compared things to racist grandmas before. It's because I'm so close to the situation, my grandma is racist. Uh, but, uh, she's an innocent racist. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but like, I, I see it in the older generations where there's such an emphasis on the immediate community and maintaining that distance. And, uh, like even just this past weekend, Canadian Thanksgiving, we were having a discussion and she said something that was pretty bigoted about maintaining that distance in fact it was a quote supporting trump where she said that she was glad they were removing themselves from like the global playing field and um i think it's a statement just as much on how distance can uh, keep ourselves from guilt but i think it's also a statement on how uh like we try to keep things in an immediate vicinity for a certain amount of ease and convenience where it's like if we keep our focus on just the community, it simplifies things. And in that simplification, we are distancing distancing ourselves from the guilt. We are distancing ourselves from the awareness. And we're also just distancing ourselves from a larger sense of angst. And so it seems like, I don't know, I don't want to sound conspiratorial. It's just like, it is in the nation's best interest to keep its populace distant from things like that. Exactly. Um, and then you can produce more people who share the same feelings as your grandma to then have the kind of closed off society repeat itself. But as I say this, like, am I any substantively different from your grandmother? Again, I can talk about these things in the abstract, but I'm still t- making no active role in helping these people. Um, so society is just as interested in maintaining people like your grandma as it is maintaining people who will talk out their fucking ass all day about other people's suffering, but won't actually do anything about it too. Mm-hmm. And so that distance has just as much of an effect on me as well, because I st- still truly don't feel the pull um, because I've not been exposed to that suffering. We're all selectivists. <laughs> it's hard because what can you really do? Besides, I guess Peter Singer scold me for that comment, but... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
just feel you feel hopeless about that kind of stuff. And I guess as I'm saying this, like the distance doesn't even necessarily account for a hundred percent of that complacency, right? Because we walk past homeless people yeah, every yeah. fucking day, right? Every fucking day. And there's no distance there, yet we still don't give a shit. There is an additional causal factor here in addition to distance that leads us to not giving a fuck about the suffering of others. So I don't know what that is. We're just all cold-hearted sons of bitches, but... <laughs> Maybe it's the fear that we might end up in that situation, so it's like a protection thing yeah. going on. I think Brennan's point on like the strong ties to a community group yeah, is huge yeah. as well, um, can lead to like classic in-group, out-group behavior, where if you're not in the in-group, then... You are not only someone who's not going to be helped, but you can even um, be seen as a threat to that group. And so um, we can put homeless people in one of those two camps. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Is there any more parallels you would draw from the story to uh, like Western civilization or just the West in general? You could kind of uh, turn it into a thought experiment on um, the capitalist system where the 1% benefits from the 99% except in this case, it's reversed with the 99% benefiting off the 1%. And in this absurd situation, we think of it as immoral, but yet we live in a society where simply by changing the ratio, um, it's, it's rationalized. Does changing the ratio making it any more morally acceptable? I think the only reason that changing the ratio makes it more acceptable comes back to a point we already discussed, which is that suffering is a relative term. And by creating a larger ratio of individuals who are living in a lesser state, that creates a new normalcy that all things are relative to Yeah, and now I'm struggling because I agree with you, but you're almost using consequentialist logic again to justify it. When the whole story is railing against consequentialism, right? Yeah. So can you escape this ever? And if you're a Kantian, what do you do? What if you just have a, it doesn't matter the fucking consequences, you cannot torture someone, right? Do you throw this entire society out the window and fuck over the 99% of people because you have this hard and fast rule? Or do you just hang your hat on a different form of consequentialism as a justification for the society? Like, isn't it also dependent on what these people are currently escaping or what like their other state of life would be had we removed this child from suffering? Like, Yeah, like maybe it's not that bad. Like maybe it's still a good life, but not as amazing if you remove the kid. Yeah, and so what is that percentage of decline yeah. that would happen? And then is that then worth it to not torture someone and have a... 100% net benefit for that person being tortured. And then what percentage do you cut down each individual members of society's well-being in order to make that possible, right? More consequentialism there, but well, it's, even, it's tough. But it's even kind of like a utilitarian perspective where it's like, uh, are we creating enough overall benefit to warrant the negative uh, necessity that provides it? Yeah, and I, I really like your point, Oliver, that we're dealing with kind of incomplete information. We are never really told what the society would be like if uh, the child was not being tortured. It, the story, of course, makes it seem like the entire society hinges on that. But that's a very good way 
to maintain the status quo. Yeah. And so to just tie it back to a kind of real world situation, yes, okay, there are always people suffering in the third world, but think of the cost to the people who are already well off in society. What happens to them? Think of the huge, you know, cutting down that they would have. But this actually, this kind of thought process only maintains that status quo. Um, you actually have no idea what happens when you start actually working on lifting up the third world at the expense of the first world, right? There's nothing necessarily to suggest that this is absolutely the case. So I like your skepticism. I also love the fact that you raised the question, Oliver, of who is the narrator? Because the very first read-through I had of this, it gave me this vibe of like this grizzled explorer that saw this utopia and like really... It was able to experience firsthand and saw its wonders and then saw the consequence and left. That was just like my immediate interpretation, though there's no indication. And then you mentioned... Like an anthropologist or something. Yeah, exactly. I also thought that maybe um, the narrator was someone who left Omilas. Yeah. Maybe let's talk about the ending. Like, how do you feel about the people who decide to walk away from Omilas? Are they praiseworthy? Have they done the right thing? And is there a real world analog to that? Um I don't think that the people leaving should be celebrated, but I don't think they should be put down either. Like they're making the decision to not contribute to an immoral practice. However, they're also not doing anything to rectify the situation. Yeah. It's kind of net neutral almost. Exactly. Do you feel like suicide is a kind of analog in our modern world or no? That's, a heavy question. Suicide is kind of an apt comparison because it's removing oneself from the situation where, but think specifically the case of someone who travels to Africa or spends their life studying the state of the third world as it's exploited by the first world and cannot bear that suffering, but realizes harder. Yeah. Or then, then also realize they can do fuck all to prevent it and -hmm. they commit suicide. Net neutral. Or is that, is there something in our, on a gut level that says, no, it's wrong? I think the only difference in the comparison would be that with suicide, I think there's an implication of the weight and consequence it holds on the close, immediate people. Whereas the people leaving the city, it's not entirely clear if it would have the same effect. But yeah, I mean, they are leaving people behind. It's a tough one. And I, I mean... What, what do you think happens to them when they leave the village? That was an it's interesting... like they're going into the unknown, but... That was an interesting point, is uh, the way that she described the next city was like, just imagine something else that's beyond your imagination. The direct quote, the place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. So what does that mean? Does it mean that it's so bad it's unimaginable? Or is it better? Maybe it's... Yeah, you never know. Maybe it's better in the sense that it doesn't have that kind of suffering to go with it. Even if it has less good, it comes at lower of a cost. Yeah, or maybe it's a society that is full of extremely fulfilled, suffering people, and that society is based upon a person wrapped in or locked in a basement who is just incredibly fucking happy. Um, <laughs> It's just as unimaginable, right? 
just having a fucking good old time in that man cave of his <laughs> and then the rest of the people just burn in hell come on in we've got netflix the man cave. yo i gotta suffer out here <laughs> that's fucking absurd man come on in we've got pizza pot <laughs> we got jenga <laughs> dude playing jenga by yourself sucks that's the, like, the people who are suffering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're forced to play Jenga by themselves. <laughs> That's a society of people playing solo Jenga. <laughs> oh no, I toppled the tower again. Would they would they be playing with the giant blocks or the tiny ones? <laughs> the giant blocks and it topples onto them every time. It's basically the board game version of the myth of Sisyphus. <laughs> The myth of Jenga. <laughs> Jesus. You build the tower up, knock it back down. Oh my God. Yeah, so we've totally gone off the fucking rails. What else do we want to talk about? One point that I found really interesting about the story was that it kept on describing this place as like the happiest place on earth. It has so much joy and so many pleasures, and yet in following the revelation that there's this child of suffering that is like the machine that churns the joy and puts it out there, uh, the description of people coming and watching it, the young spectators, it says they are always shocked and sickened at the sight. They feel disgust, which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. So we're given this description of a place that's so full of joy, and yet we're also provided this description of people who feel contrary emotions to that, people who are struggling with the dilemma and ultimately feeling some negativity. Does this mean that the description of the city of one of the happiest places on earth is a lie in itself, and that the awareness of the suffering of a child is something that degrades the human experience. Like, how happy is this city actually if there are these negative emotions? I think a lot about, now that you bring this up, there's some sort of implications of human nature in this story, where if the way that we think is merely a product of our surroundings and our upbringing, then there would be no reason for these children to feel such a negative response to seeing something like this because they would realize, oh, yeah, okay, here's a suffering child, but you know what? look at all of this joy that society brings us. The reaction that the children have um, suggests that human beings are not a blank slate and we have baked in intuitions about things that are right and wrong. And maybe that is, I don't know the right word, like cooked out of or just Baked out of, or like juiced out of us. Juiced, juiced out is the fucking perfect way. <laughs> juiced out of the adults in the society because they have been in the society for so long. Whereas the children who have not um, been in it for as long hold on to these core human intuitions about what is wrong, and that's why they're feeling that. So I think that there's uh, this fill or this short story suggests something about our human nature. Um, and that it is not a blank slate and that um, we are not mere products of our environment in the society that we are birthed into. Yeah, there is a little bit of that nature versus nurture discussion that can ensue from the fact that there are people that feel this disgust upon the first revelation when they see it for the first time. But there must be something innate in human beings or at least the people of the city 
if there are people who are feeling disgust towards it, despite it being the only reality they know, at least under my assumption, that's the only reality they know. Yeah, or maybe um, maybe at one point in time, the city wasn't a happy place, and then this new structure came in. But I guess that doesn't explain why the kids would... Yeah, never mind. <laughs> I think you bring up an interesting point, though. Similar to the penal colony, we don't know what happened before Amalus or what led to the creation of Amalus and why it is that it's such a perfect society. So again, we're dealing with incomplete information. We don't know what that past is like. And maybe if it was such a rough and troubled past, the elders in the society or the people who brought Amalus about are okay with the subjugation of one human being because they have lived through the suffering of thousands or even millions. Mm -hmm. So to them, it's a very, very small sacrifice. But yeah, just as in the penal colony, we get no sense of historical background other than don't expect there to be any kings or horses or, you know, knights or anything. So it's not an aristocracy, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't other forms of oppressive societies that preceded Amalas. Also, does a new kid get put in there once in a while? Like, yeah, does he stay for six years old forever or what? Like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> or, okay, hold on. It looks six, but it's actually nearly 10. So yeah, either the kids get replaced or... Omalas is only 10 years old, which has even more implications for historical background of this city. Mm -hmm. And if it was one kid that suffered in perpetuity versus a rotation of children, does that change your perception of it in any way? Yes. How so? Well, and it's now, instead of this society being built upon like a single human being, but if you could, it's more of a shell of just pure suffering. Um, so everyone like pitches in almost? Yeah, but then if you have it where the children are cycled in and out, then you have a society that's actually based upon human sacrifice, right? Yeah. So that changes the stakes a little bit. Also, why don't they just give the kids some Drews? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Get the kid suffering. high as fuck. You're having the time of his life in the pits of hell. <laughs> but it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, when you turn this into something where the children are being cycled out, the society is playing a much more of an active role in bringing about that suffering. And I think that that's a... Key wouldn't, they be, wouldn't they be reducing the suffering if they're cycling kids in and out like now it's your turn to pay your dues you'll suffer for a little bit but we'll come and tap you out <laughs> yeah i guess it would be the way that they did it right do they leave a kid in there for its entire life until it dies or it's like oh no just do your time go in there for a year <laughs> do your time in the hole yeah you know it all depends on the structure i would definitely feel differently depending on that situation but I don't know, maybe it could be glorious. You know, you go in and do your time in order to bring about the yeah. happiness of the rest of society. So it'd be almost of a heroic journey. And then when you come out, you're like considered king of the orgies. They're like, this guy gets first pick. <laughs> he suffered for all of you. But maybe it's like a competition, like who can stay in there the longest? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. I like to think that God like, damn. I like to think that the joy in this society is proportional to the suffering of the child. So at some point in time, someone's in an orgy. Like, man, this just isn't that good. That kid's too damn happy. <laughs> he, like, leaves the orgy and goes back down, bangs on the door. Hey, hey kid. Fuck you. <laughs> you're, you're now this orgy's live. I can't come because of you. Like, <laughs> he's in his bathroom, too. <laughs> Excuse me. Could you be a little Jesus. more miserable? I'm trying to bang up here. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Well, any final thoughts? How do we feel about Le Guin? How do we feel about this story? I didn't. I'd be interested in uh, visiting some of her other works. Yeah, me too. And I thought, like, a brief aside, like, 
Um, interesting thought experiment, but some nice writing in here too. Um, some nice passages, pretty enjoyable to read, and the descriptions of the society and and the the parts dedicated to semi critiques of our society. I thought were were very nicely written. Yeah, I was gonna say. It's not like the most imaginative piece, but I think it's very effective in getting you to take a moment and reflect on this situation, as well as how it compares and differentiates itself from our current situation, uh, such that it evokes you to be a little bit more critical of both. I like it. Okay, that concludes our episode on Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omilos. Thank you very much for listening. Please leave us a review on iTunes with a five star and maybe a nice comment. So we need that to get the ball rolling here. Yeah, cool. Um, good episode, boys. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah.